welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies, and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV, and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon, and in each episode, we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick, and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 24, we continue with our adventure through Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Having explored the main themes in part one, we turn to part two with a look at some of the lesser known cues from this great film. And joining me on day leave again, oh, that's interesting, from Azkaban Prison, having this time broken wizarding law by being caught driving the night bus during the day. It's a day-night joke. It's composer, arranger, orchestrator, and man who thinks hippogriffs are just a poor man's pegasus. It's a Nicholas Buck. How are you doing, Nick? They totally are a poor man's pegasus. <laughs> um, doing very well. Now, there are so many other little interesting cues in this film, which we haven't even discussed yet. So there I'm were. really looking forward to some of the more eccentric moments that come out of William's brain. Now, Nick, I'm a jazz guy. We didn't even get to the jazz. No. <laughs> Part two's my time. It My sure time is. to shine, finally. Finally. <laughs> 24 episodes in. And having just closed his ill-fated Dementor-themed restaurant due to too many reviews that sucked. Oh, oh that's good, isn't it? Oh. Is writer, critic, Muggle University lecturer, and guy whose idea of a good night out is a pumpkin pasty, followed by an hour in the Shrieking Shack <laughs> so he can collect his thoughts. It's Dr. Dan Golding. How are you doing, Dan? I, I solemnly swear that I am up to no good. And that the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> so we're back for part two. Yeah, we are. We yeah. are. We are. We couldn't. I, I think there is just so much to the score that really gives it substance. And and you know, we. I was saying earlier that we could have really just lined up the cues from start to finish, and that could have been the structure of the podcast mm. and gone through basically every single cue, every single track, at least on the album, uh, and that would have been. Uh, fine uh so i think we've, we've got some great stuff to get through let's get to the music because yes john williams almost unlike any other composer has this knack of like writing amazing set pieces yeah. of music you know think of god all the way back like um the asteroid field from mm. the empire strikes back doesn't appear anywhere else in any of the yeah. star wars films yep or solo well, solo yep. yeah. <laughs> yeah. um or skirtso for motorcycle and orchestra another favorite of mine yep. yeah it's a ripper just like one solid idea that he'll just put in one scene and you never hear it again. And it yep. just makes it so unique. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really magical. And he has got heaps of them in this film. And we really can't go past the very first showstopper, which is called Aunt Marge's Waltz, which is this is that horrible character, Vernon's um, Uncle Vernon's sister. Um, God, she's such a great she's, nasty woman. Yeah, there. she's she's wonderfully played in this because... You know, I guess in the book they they sort of talk about how bad she is, but she is really mm. nasty. Mm, I mean, yeah. like I've always felt in the the films prior to this that the Dursleys, you know, they're sort of, you know, they're not good people. No, but they're more bumbling and yeah. and sort of comically 
nasty. Mm. She's mm. actually proper nasty in this, yeah. and you really do hate her when she, yeah. you know, carries yeah. on. Yeah, mm. she's a real. It's it's like a. I think I've described it as like a like a grotesquerie is her character. Yeah, the word. yeah, yeah. And yeah. the music is kind of you know grotesque in a way. Um, yeah, I mean, what what we end up getting from Williams is he plays on the fact that Harry casts his spell on Aunt Marge, where she basically just like. Um, expands. It's, it's a bit of a Willy Wonka moment, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. she just bit. expands into mm-hmm. a big ball and mm-hmm. floats off into the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the whole scene is scored with this kind of quirky waltz, and um, to me, I really hear shades of, of Prokofiev in the way that it it doesn't pick a key; it really kind of modulates and yeah. it's changing. Yeah, it's really kind of off kilter, almost like a like a slight circus going out of control slightly, but still with that refined elegance. So here's here's a bit of Aunt Marge's waltz. So on and so forth, uh, but it's it's so it's delightfully kind of like playful. Yeah, you know the colors, the way it kind of passes between the instruments. You know, it starts off delicate, and then you kind of like when the horns come in towards the end, it's almost like it's her. They're a bit yeah. kind of grotesque and like yeah. almost like their dogs barking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, even the they they make fun of her her weight yeah. with a bump, bump, bump. Bomb, yeah, bomb. Yeah. You know, there's like a real heavy plodding, yeah. you know, sort of in the lower brass, and uh, yeah, then you got the sort of the the mischievousness of Potter's magic, I guess, happening over the top. Yeah, well, I mean, these sort of grotesque waltz, in a way, is is being used through. I mean, in the silent era as well, to kind of you know, for comedy, it's kind of inherently kind of. It's music that mimics laughter in a way, and and mm. kind of you know silliness. Yeah, mm. yeah, totally. And look, I wonder whether this was tempted by Quaron or whether Williams is doing a bit of a sort of wink to the camera yeah. uh, or to the musicians out there because there's a passage in here which is straight out of the great opera composer Rossini in his piece called the opera called The Thieving Magpie. Mm. So I'll play a bit of The Thieving Magpie um, going into Harry Potter and you'll hear these really kind of low trombone arpeggio figures that end kind of kind of go bop, 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 bop in a really sort of overly comic opera um, dramatic way. In fact, speaking of comic opera, I mean, there's a whole style called opera buffo, mm. uh, which basically is like like funny opera. Mm. And, uh, you know, the music isn't necessarily overtly funny per se, mm. but the way it's kind of used in that sort of overly dramatic way makes it really kind of comical. And, and you get a bit of sense that here in the Rossini. Have a listen to this rhythm here. Mm. 
that sort of skipping, and it gets faster and faster and faster. You can really feel it building towards the end of the, you know, the closing of Act One. Yeah. You know, sort of things are getting a bit cacophonous. It's really playing on that on that feature here, and and it's sort of like you know, I mean, for those listeners who I hope most listeners have have heard part one of this podcast, I mean, it's sort of just like, is this really the same film <laughs> <laughs> as as almost everything else, else that we've heard so far? Yeah. And and this is actually, I think this is pretty much the first major piece of music in the entire film. Yeah, to mm. me, this is like the Bond pre-title sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of. You know, I mean, look, every yeah. Potter film. Well, not everyone, but a lot of the first ones, they all start with a little kind of yeah. set piece at the Dursleys. Mm. You know, yeah. the first, second one, Chamber of Secrets. Ron arrives in the car with his mm. brothers, and they escape to the window. It's more comical. Mm. Uh, the first one, all the letters, I think, come flying. Yeah, it's a yeah, bit yeah. longer in the first film, but yeah, mm. um, you know, all the letters. I mean, that, come that's flying. certainly how the books books are. There yeah. is there comes a point where they abandon. Yeah. That the whole standard structure, yeah. and and really, this book is the first time that they sort of start departing from the structure mm. of the start at the Dursleys, somehow escape, you know, yeah. or something happens, and then mm. you go to you know get on the train, and you know all those things happen. Mm. I mean, really, the the next film, uh, the next book, sort of gets back to that again because mm. you're back at school, yeah. um, you're going through the year as you do normally, whereas this one, it's not really like that. So. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, it's um it's certainly a really funny opening number. Mm. And like you said, Nick, it's so overtly um classical for want of a better term. Yeah. Um mm. that you know, it really does feel like, you know, the curtain should just fall mm. uh, <laughs> at the end of it and then it rises again and the set's changed and, you know. I, I also, um, I, I, now I'm putting you on the spot, mm. Nick, but I, I mean, as a conductor or as someone who has and will conduct uh, this score, what are the time signature changes going on towards the end of this piece? Because it seems really weird to me. Yeah, all it does is it sort of, there's a little accelerando, so it gets a little faster, still in the sort of waltz thing. And then it basically, <clears throat> it just the speed just ramps up. So it goes from like 100 to 180. So oh, we go from right. one, two, three, 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 one, two, three. And as a conductor, you basically conduct it in one. Mm. Yeah. So it's one, 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 one. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like... Yeah, little, okay. Right. Yeah. I'll, I'll play the bit you mean now. Yeah. One, two, three, one, two. And so on and so forth. This gets faster and faster and faster. It's like a horse race. Check out this chord. Great chord that is. That's, yeah. that's a final joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's like, you know, <laughs> look, it's not that wrong. There's like a couple of little just yeah. wrong notes in there. Yeah. Just to kind of oh, make you kind of screw your head to the side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that is that fast waltz? Uh I mean, does it work its way up to a scherzo or is that um you wouldn't refer to it that way? Um look the last bit I guess you would, mm. yeah. I mean it's it's not a waltz at the mm. end. Like, I mean, imagine Rewind it and listen and try and uh, dance to that, <laughs> unless you're driving. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it really becomes a sort of a, a, a bolt. Yeah, <laughs> and it gets just more and more ludicrous as it yeah. goes along. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like it's it's kind of fantastic. I, I I've never quite thought about it in this terms before, but it, like three it, any music that's in three or six or you know variations of that is the music with the most right potential for humor or, or sarcasm. 
I think, you know, like Shostakovich does this so well in a lot of his like, you know, sarcastic waltzes um, in his music where it's just like music that inherently sort of is a bit it's too self-serious yeah. to be well, actually Remember our Batman episode where they had yeah. that fight at the, yeah. at the top of the cathedral? I mean, it's, it's very similar to this in, in what it's doing in relation to the picture. Absolutely. Mm. Cool. <laughs> Shall we move on to another... Uh, well, once again, it's a, a, a comedy bit. We can get to your, uh, your cue, Andrew. Oh, it's my specialty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do this. Yeah, so we're talking about the next kind of... Again, really crazy bit of music that just mm. doesn't relate to anything else in the film. Yeah. yeah. And that's the night bus. Yep. Where Williams really gives us what is just just crazy, crazy jazz. Like kitchen sink style jazz. Yeah. It's uh, the most unhinged jazz since the Cantina Band in Star Wars in seventy seven, <laughs> I think. From from Williams, that is. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, well before we uh, talk about too much, Nick, let's um let's have a listen to it. So it really, it's pumping around, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, and you've got really like weird percussion. You've got whistles, mm. like mm. actual, like, like physical education whistles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you've got the winds doing really high shrieking, um, you know, walking bass, which is written just for like one double bass player. Oh, really? So yeah. it's sort of mixing a bit of, it's like using the orchestra as a, a really crazy playground jazz band. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, the the style that I wanted to sort of just uh, touch on very quickly is, I guess, closest to a bebop style. Mm. Uh, but before we, we get into bebop, there is one piece of classical music that I wanted to uh, quickly play for you that I thought perhaps have elements here in that it's called a uh, short ride in a fast machine and it's by an American composer ah, called John Adams love this. and uh, here it is here Williams far more crazy than hmm. that, but it's a similar sort of idea, right? It's that that yeah. idea of sort of things popping up and and that sort of frantic machine yeah. running underneath. And I think right at the top of the queue, it has that same sort of idea of the bump, 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 hmm. bump, sort of happening at the start. So there's you know there's a lot of some similarities I, there. I, I would love it if that was 
kind of almost, uh, well, a conscious influence on Williams because I think the influence goes both ways. I mean, to me, John Adams is the composer who has made it into kind of the pantheon of great classical composers who has been influenced by John Williams. I mean, yeah. some of his work like Harmonieul, I've never known how to say that. No, I've, I don't know how to say that. Harmonieul, the piece, <laughs> I, I'm probably totally butchering the name of that. But to me, I mean, there are sections of that where I'm like, this is really strongly influenced by film music and, and, and Williams in particular. So I would love it if there was, there, there was that influence. Yeah, I, I think that's there. Um, and like I said, the the style that Williams is using, it's not a direct, you know, bebop style. Mm. It's got elements everywhere. And like you said, it sort of he throws the kitchen sink at everything. I even think I hear, and, and once again, Nick, you, you know the instrumentation here, it sounds like there is some keyboard almost like it's from the cantina scene. Mm. Like there's a little sort of weird keyboard I hear in the back. Is, is keyboard playing in this? Yeah, but it's... Synth I, I, I or something? It, I think it's on... Yeah, I think maybe it's the synth. There is definitely piano. Yeah. And the winds are sort of, there's saxophones in there, yep. mm. uh, which are optional yeah, yeah, for like yeah. a live presentation. Yeah. I think there is a little, yeah, weird kind of synthy kind of sound going on. I'm not actually sure what it is though. But it's, <laughs> it's like, it really is like he sort of swept everything yeah. up and then yeah. just threw it. I mean, it almost could be like kind of steel drum yeah. style. Yeah. That's like, actually what that it kind is. kind of metallic yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 sort of thing. Uh, so let, let's talk bebop for just <laughs> one second. Um, now, bebop is a jazz style that I guess happened from uh, the 40s-ish, uh, late 30s to 40s, um, as a direct uh, reaction to the swing era. So you had swing music that was, I guess, the pop music of the time. Um, it's certainly what people listen to in their homes. Um, it's what people dance to. Yeah. And as with a lot of African-American music, jazz being the music I'm talking about, as it got popular, a lot of white musicians mm. started to play it and it started getting played for a lot of white people. Mm. So, and this is very important to understand because as a lot of musical periods are direct reactions to the previous period. So you had a situation where you had jazz music that was, you know, certainly the music of the slaves and music of, of African-Americans in general mm. and it was their music and then it's getting taken in by white culture again and being appropriated. Literally Paul Whiteman's orchestra. Yeah, Paul Whiteman's one of the, early, one of the orchestras, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, importantly also that a lot of the musicians who were started playing it, a lot of the white musicians, weren't very good players. They weren't very good jazz musicians. And uh, a lot of the tempos were sort of quite slow and everything was sort of quite poorly played and it got quite schmaltzy and it was mm. really made for, for you know, white audiences to sort of dance to at, at, at their version of discos, mm. <laughs> 1930s discos. So you had this reaction where there was a very conscious decision from African-American musicians to uh, work against that. So what's the first thing you do when you don't want people to dance to your music? <laughs> you make it really fast. So they up the tempo in a big, big way. And then they also make it really complicated. So no longer are there just a few chords to play on, like with the blues and like with a lot of the, the swing music. You have lots of chords. You have chords that are changing almost every two beats, sometimes every beat. And it means that the technical proficiency required as a bar of entry is raised really high so that 
all of the crappy um, musicians that <laughs> that were being frowned upon by the sort of the, the jazz uh, fraternity were no longer able to keep up mm. in this this new world. Now it's difficult to sort of say when this uh, shift happened because in the late 30s there was a recording ban in the states, so the yeah. union sort of uh, got together and told everyone that we're getting ripped off by the record companies. We're no longer allowed to record, so they had this sort of unionized recording ban. And so during this ban. Um, really bebop evolved and we don't have any record of it which is a real shame so we don't sort of hear the beginnings of it but really when the recording industry came back online so to speak certainly (laughs) there was no internet back then uh, when it started printing discs you had a situation where uh, players like uh, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and um, even a very young Miles Davis Mm. were uh, you know exploring this new style and so I thought it might be interesting just to play a piece here by Dizzy Gillespie um, who's a trumpet player And uh, he had a big band and he had one of the few big bands as once again a direct reaction to those swing bands uh, that played bebop music only. So this fast, frenetic, lots of chord changes, lots of sort of really complicated rhythms and he made a big band out of it. And um, here's a piece of music called The Champ. Split the da da down, So we're getting closer to the night bus at this point. Um, but I, I love how I didn't actually introduce it properly. I love how Dizzy starts with um, scat. Yeah. You know, he's sort of, uh, and importantly, not scatting a melody. So a lot of scat singers would go, and would have, you know, a melody to it. But mm-hmm. he's scatting drums yeah. at that point. And it's because, once again, a lot of uh, big bands at the time, uh, certainly the old swing bands, would start with a drum solo as a, a sort of way of entry. And you have Dizzy sort of working against that by saying, we're not going to start with drum solo. I'm just going to go, bop, 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 you know, and do that whole thing. Mm. So cool. Um, I really love it. And I love this night bus cue. I think it's wild. I, I think it's out of control. It's everything that's happening on the screen. I also wonder as well. Um, it, it, so one of the other things about bebop is that it went from swung in the sense of the rhythm being swung of like dun, 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 rather than dun, 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 dun. Yeah, 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 yeah. To bebop because they're playing so fast. You can't really change the rhythm that it's more about the accent. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're right. So the beats are going past so quickly in this, in that last instance, it's like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. So you you can't go, you have to go. So yes, absolutely becomes part of the accents. And that's where you have those accents popping up all over the place. Whenever we I do this in concert, I always get questions from the wind players. Excuse me. Yeah. Is this swung? And I'm like, good luck. Yeah, you, yeah, you tried something. <laughs> yeah. like, One, two, three, four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah he's good. <laughs> 
at, at tempo, you, you know, went so fast, yeah. you just can't tell. Yeah. And that, and that's what a lot of bebop music becomes about rhythm. Mm. Um, it becomes less about the notes. You'll notice that same with John Williams' um, composition here. He is using all the notes, all 12 notes. It's all chromatic. It's not following a single scale. It's not mm. like a lot of the other melodies. It's using any note. And in fact, I, you know, I could grab an instrument, any of the musicians who play this could grab an instrument and then play anything over the top as long <laughs> as the rhythm is, is a bebop rhythm. And mm. that is something that is uh, characterized by um, leaping around changes of direction. So, and every time it changes direction, you get a little accent. Mm-hmm. So, played really fast, you know, and you get all over the top. Mm. So, um, yeah, so it's all about the rhythm in this piece. It's not about mm. the harmony. It's not about what's going on. You could mm. get some very talented improvisers and just tell them to play in this cue and it would still sort of sound the same, um, totally. I think. Yep. So, But there is one really cool thing that happens in the middle of this cue, Nick, and that's when they decide to squeeze the bus yeah. uh, smaller. Oh, that's and then all of a sudden some accordions. Yeah. Accordion <laughs> sound sort of comes in. And, and the Calliope. You know the Calliope is? What's the Calliope? No. It's like that kind of... It's a kind of creepy... Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know... That didn't make it more clear. Oh. Have you ever been to like a circus and they have that yeah. really kind of creepy oh. offbeat? Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The little tooty kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. pipey sound. It's like a little pan pipe thing. So can we queue up this, yeah. uh, this, this, this section where it turns from sort of frantic music into sort of a stretched thing and then, you know, it's played on instruments, like I said, with the accordion. It's a stretchy instrument. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a really funny, clever choice. It is. Here it is. Wow. I mean, like, again, it's just like, is this still the Prisoner of Azkaban? Is this this still the same score that included the medieval music from before and the soaring? We haven't heard the medieval music yet. Well, exactly. I mean, I I think when I first said, I'm like, we got Rossini style waltzes, we got crazy jazz. I mean, I wasn't expecting, you know, Renaissance music to come after it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It, it really, um, it's hard to even say what the mood of this movie is from a school point of view. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's all Eclectic. over the, yeah, it's yeah. all over the shop at this point. Mm. Um, and I, I see his shades of Tintin. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah and, and a bit of Catch Me If You Can. I'll play a bit of them, especially the Tintin bit. Mm. It's got a bit of harpsichord, but yeah, just sort of, yeah, weird, weird kind of jazz. Thank you. 
I mean, he's a great composer for jazz-inflected music. He, yeah. he, he was a jazz pianist at the start of his career. He was Johnny Williams. I think we've mentioned this before. Apparently still he calls everybody baby. <laughs> uh, Dan Baby. Yeah. No, JJ Baby on the on the, Well, on I mean, the... speaking of his early stuff, I mean, he did this great album called uh, Rhythm in Motion in the early 60s mm. where he just basically took like jazz standards and just like Williamsified it. Um, and this is a bit of a piece called Johnny One Note. <laughs> Johnny One Note. But, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of standard big band, but you just get these sort of weird passages where he just adds weird woodwind things and then just rips back into the, into the vibe. You can hear Lost in Space there, can't yeah. you? Yeah. Like that, yeah. one of his first scores for TV. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's all in there. It's amazing. That it's is, crazy, isn't that it? Is, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's happened before. That's that's possibly the first Williams cue that I've never heard before. Well, cue. Williams well, it's not really a cue. It's more yeah. like a yeah. Williams piece of music that I I'll lend you the album, before. Dan. Yeah, I, I, am, <laughs> I am keen as. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think it it even has antiphonal timpanies across the uh, left and right stereo spectrum. Wow. Wow. Okay. Dan Dan genuinely (laughs) just had a big grin come across. I'll get out my my old amplifier and uh, hear those (laughs) (laughs) symphonies. Amazing. Fantastic. Now we um, we get a Quidditch match in this film. Heaven forbid. Um, It's not your standard one though, is it? No. Mm. Even the way it looks, I mean, it's, Mm. it's... Dark, it's rainy, yeah. windy, it's really kind of moody. It's like a real grudge match. Yeah, yeah. but it's almost like it's sort of like we, we've now just taken a really rude left-hand turn back into the music that you might feasibly expect in Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's full orchestral stuff. But, I mean, he, he kind of writes almost like a quasi-fugue. Yeah. Fugue being, you know, like one, one section of the orchestra starts the melody, then... Another one takes it up and it really passes around. But I mean, yeah, you really you're hearing the development of his action writing mm. as, as well. So look there, let's hear a bit of the Quidditch match. And um, I think we were talking earlier. The the main theme that he writes here almost sounds like a Dia Zero. It's not, but it, it, it has a very similar contour. It's interesting. <laughs> Could have come straight out of the prequels, Star yeah. Wars. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? yeah. Like 
You, you could have put that over any action sequence in Star Wars and it would sound <laughs> correct. Yeah. You know? it's, I mean, it's really just John Williams' action music. Yeah. Which is yeah. its own genre, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As we'll discuss with the next yeah. cue as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but interestingly, Nicholas Hooper, who scored the fifth and sixth Harry Potter films, actually used that little bum, 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 bum melody in his Quidditch match. Um, but it's much more kind of positive. <laughs> You'll hear it. It just doesn't have the kind of the darkness that, that Williams has. I mean, if you're a new composer to the Harry Potter series, you've got the whole back catalogue to sort of pilfer and, <laughs> you know. It's like I just don't know if that's the one that I'd turn well, yeah. to. I mean, it's fine. I'm happy to see it reemerge, but like mm. it's kind of bewildering that you, sort of, you, know, you don't see a reappearance of a window to the past or something like that, but you yeah. see... Mm. You it's see just, yeah, it's just a little here. gesture. I mean, maybe, yeah, that's when he was doing the Quidditch scene, he... Looked at the first film and maybe it was too kind of just a bit yeah. too kind of celebratory in English, and this yeah. one had a bit more of a simplistic motivic. Just yeah. that's the four note idea. I I'm almost certainly going to get the uh, genre wrong here, but when it finishes with that little sort of brass statement and then it goes into the the new stuff, why does it sound? I want to say Scottish. I want to say yeah. it's something Irish. I don't know those oh, peri- the, those areas the too well. Hooper one. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the Hooper. Yeah. So uh, I don't know the accompaniment. Can you can you just play it again, Nick? I'll, yeah. I'll point out the bit you're talking the about. It's almost a bit jiggy. Yeah, it sounds like a jig. It sounds like yeah. folky. Yeah. But I mean, look, some some of his score, yeah, is is folky. I'll play it again though. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's just pro- that probably his best cue, which is used in both both the scores. I think yeah, uh, is yep. the, the fireworks cue from yes. from Order of the Phoenix, which really does have a jiggy. Yeah, it is a jig. It's. Ah, see now it makes sense. Yeah. Now I know we're talking about Prisoner of Azkaban. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but well, I, I just want to learn things about other films. We're, we're probably mm. not going to do a Order of the Phoenix or well, not anytime films. soon. Yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's nice to to get the mention in. Never World say World never. No, Dan. it's true. It's yeah. true. Absolutely. Anyway, shall we move on, Nick? Yeah. Yes. Um, the Whomping Willow. That crazy tree. That yeah. kind of tries to kill them. Yeah. That gets some awesome music, doesn't it? It's, mm. it's again another one of these little set pieces <laughs> that would have been a really standout cue in any other film, and I always forget it's there. Yeah. When I listen to the soundtrack, it's like, oh, oh yeah, that's that awesome cue that I totally <laughs> forgot about. Um, so h- h- here we go.
just bring it down there because I want to talk about the rest of the queue in a moment. But that, I mean, that just that little brass statement, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, and and little... rhythmically, it's really weird. Yeah. But until I conducted this, I always thought it was different to what it is. I thought it was, it was mm. like, um, and you know, and one, two, three, four, one, like really straight. Mm. But it's actually in six, eight, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and so it actually like kind of pushes and pulls against against the. It's like off mm. off the beat. It's totally like snazzy. Yeah, yeah. it's really cool. And then, I mean, it goes on. We heard a kind of a little bit of a snippet there, um, but the the kind of action music, the John Williams action style music that we get there, is really like it's his interest in the ostinato, really this reoccurring rhythmic sort of figure that we get here. But we also get in similar action music. He's writing around the same period, so I'll just play this this next little bit in the same cue for the Whomping Willow. So that, you know, that dun, 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 that sort of, you know, off kilter thing. If we then go to the, the kind of action music he's writing around the same period, so like the cue called General Grievous uh, from Revenge of the Sith, the, the third and final prequel, you get sort of, you know, very similar sorts of ideas. You know what's interesting, and I've read this a lot about Jerry Goldsmith, is that composers often choose in action scenes really unbalanced metric time mm. signatures. Like it could be a seven eight, you know, one two one two one two three one two one two one two three. Because what it does is it gives them the freedom to like kind of hit anything, and by hit I mean like a cue point. Yeah. You know, they can go bun do They can hit any of those things, and because it's not really metric, like if you're in four four one two three four one two three. If you're kind of hitting something on like two and or four, it can feel a bit kind of like, oh, that doesn't really fit the structure of this music. Mm. But when it when the music is already really kind of off kilter, you can just have hits and cymbal crashes and whatever anywhere you want, and it just it, it just feels feels right and it's much easier to kind of accomplish. Yeah, I've also got a connection here for you, Dan. Mm. Why General Grievous works with the Whomping Willow? Mm. Both have many limbs. <laughs> <laughs> and both are sort of trying to kill somebody with those many limbs. <laughs> All right. Well, riddle me this because I've got another cue from War of the Worlds that I think I'm ready. is doing very similar things. Yep. That's attack on the calf. Yeah, don't the, the alien things have big tentacles? Yeah, yeah. Many, <laughs> many tentacles. Many limbs. <laughs> many limbs. We just discovered yeah. it's another case solved by <laughs> Art of the Score. It's uh, William's uh, many limbs music. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, imagine if he scored Octopussy. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of music do we have? Oh, oh no. There we uh, go, Dan. Well, nice one, Dan. Uh, amazing. You I, came in here wanting to talk <laughs> Whomping Willows and you, you left learning something. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> well, yep. I yeah. mean, also, the other link is Prisoner of Azkaban is 2004 and the other two movies are 2005. So, obviously, this is... Dan, we don't want your... Okay, all We right, don't want fine. numbers to come into <laughs> our musical world. Oh, uh, hold on, numbers of limbs. What? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, speaking of Whomping Willows, Nick. Yes. Um, the Whomping Willow, well, the movie, I guess, is punctuated mm. by things flying into the Whomping Willow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> to sort of show time passing, uh, which I think is sort of a really cool little. It's a funny little thing. Um, Gives a tree a bit happens. of life and personality. Yeah, and it sort of shows the seasons changing within the film in a sort of a, a fun way. And of course, the first time we see a lovely little bird fly through um, parts of Hogwarts, I guess. Yeah, and and comically meet its fate <laughs> with the Whomping Willow. We, we get a, a really cool piece of music. Yeah. And I'm going to preface this by saying that flautists around the world are scared of this cue. And so you'll they hear should be. exactly why. It's a great cue. It's a lovely, lovely little piece of, of music that is never used ever again or brought up ever again. Yeah. But I have heard it re-recorded. Really? And I'm going to play this for comparison. Tell me what is wrong with this recording. Oh. like one of those you remember going around the internet a while ago that was justin bieber but slowed down eight <laughs> yeah. maybe that was the rehearsal yeah. <laughs> i mean look at look at well it's interesting because you actually hear yeah. what the flute is doing yeah i don't know it's a bit of a cop out well, i think it's, it's that's, not, that's a little slow yeah it's a little slow <laughs> yeah. it's not just fast that piece of music but it's it's not slurred it's double tongue yeah it's like triple i don't even know how so like i mean i mean andrew you're the most talented woodwind player out of any that's really saying something isn't it can you scat it like like we describe what double tongue is it double tongue do you think yeah i guess so yeah i don't think it's be single tongued so i think it's it's a double tongue on there it's different parts of your tongue hitting Hitting parts of your mouth to give a if you go you're you're using two parts of your tongue to give a ta 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 because I can't go ta 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 I can go does double tonguing have to be on the same note like does it have to be two of every note like no 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 you can you can use it to tongue individual notes so so usually woodwind players would would this didn't occur to me until mm. I started to learn to play a woodwind instrument that you don't just go ha ha to yep. start every note. You go ta with your tongue yes. to clearly start it. Yeah. And so, and so double tongue. I mean, I think it would usually be like tucka 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 tucka. Yeah, tucka 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 or I mean there's all sorts of different sort of, you know, vowels or ways of mm. using your tongue that you can you can use. Mm. Uh, but you know, I guess for people, you know, listening to we don't want to talk too much about the inner workings of our mouths um, <laughs> on this podcast, but you know, 
just know that with wind instruments, they are often using, certainly with woodwind instruments like flute and, and clarinet and so on, they're using their tongues to start notes and to mm. give an accent and to, mm. to make them pop out. And because this is so fast, this particular one, and each note is popping yeah. almost individually, yeah. um, it it's means that... that performance. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful performance. I mean, what an amazing flute player, uh, flautist. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's, there's obviously some kind of crazy, uh, you know, double-tonguing, single-tonguing yeah. going on. I mean, can you do can you do it that fast even without a mouthpiece? Like the... Tick, 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 tick. No. God, no. <laughs> that was no, pretty no. good, Dan. You just yeah, did yeah. it. Now, <laughs> now do it for another 15 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, Nick, there was another piece of music that I thought about, which is a sort of a direct correlation to this and being a bird, and that is Prokofiev's uh, Peter and the Wolf mm. and the, um, the bird cue, or at least the, the melody for the, uh, the bird in Peter and the Wolf. And so let's have a listen. That's slurred. That's cheating in comparison. Yeah, yeah. I reckon Williams heard that and goes, you know, like, I'm going to write the definitive bird flute (laughs) excerpt. This will be on excerpts, not the Peter and the Wolf one. It is a really cool little cue. And there's all these little surprising moments in this film where there are, I I guess, scene changes or or time within the film changes. Mm. What would you call that, Dan? It's, I guess, scene change. Yeah, like montage. Montaging, yeah, anyway. So, um, and you have all these little pieces of connecting music. So, Mm. yeah, it's great. Um, staying on this theme of, of great woodwind writing, there's this bit where they have a snow fight. And the writing here between like brass and winds, it's very light, but it's so quintessential Williams. And um, to me, it just reminds me of the lost boy chase from Hook. So I'll do a bit of back and forth and I quiz you guys to try and find where, where the seams are. If you find it, it's probably my bad editing and not the Williams <laughs> writing because it's very similar. <laughs> Work. What a mashup! Mm. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, you just hear that yeah. just really crazy little little, little yeah, yeah, yeah. coloring. It's just Very delightful moods. Yeah. yeah, I guess the the snow fight, the uh, Harry Potter cue, is a little more driving. It's a little yes. more rhythmic, a little more yep. um, I don't know, fast paced. Um, yeah, it's the other more, one's a little more playful. Yeah, I it's guess. more yep. uh, it's more 
Harry Potter is chortling and Hook is guffawing. Yeah. Ah! Or one's on like a sandy ground and one's on yeah. snow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, um, that scene, that snow fight scene, I think also has the distinction of being just shortly before the 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 worst piece of acting in this film, where poor Daniel Radcliffe is has to has to cry and and yell through his tears of, you know, he was their friend. Ha ha ha! And like, <laughs> it sounds like he's laughing. Yeah. <laughs> I, he got better. Um, uh, you know, he's only a kid. I shouldn't pick on him too much, but it, that scene always stands out in my memory. <laughs> That's brutal. Um, er, earlier, I mentioned very briefly Lupin's jazz. Professor Lupin often has jazz playing in his room and classes and stuff. And this great sequence where all the all the kids have to kind of um, mm. do that spell against the boggart that comes out Ridiculous. of the, um, that comes out of the cupboard there. And it's great because I'll play here how Williams just basically overlays his kind of really creepy score cues whilst the jazz either plays underneath or kind of cuts out and then kicks back in. It really it flows between the fun that they're having in the class versus, you know, the, their, their fears like we were talking about earlier. Mm. It's a really interesting effect. I mean, the brief snatch in there of the Tom playing with the clarinet solo is very sing, 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 Benny Goodman. Mm, yeah. Um, but the rest is, you know, kind of interesting melange of swing yeah. big band era stuff. And look, I'm trying to think of other films we hear that where, um, you know, there might be like at a party, you know, music playing and then out of the corner. I mean, some of the Bond, yeah. earlier Bond films did mm. this where, you know, I think at Thunderball, he's like dancing with Fiona... Um, what what whatever name at like some sort of outdoor dance party mm. and then you know an assassin appears in the corner yeah, with yeah, a gun yeah. and John Barry's music kind of creeps in over the top. Yeah, I mean we've we've done an episode on uh, Back to the Future when he's first in Hill Valley and mm. you've got the uh, Mr. Sandman plane and yep. it's sort of pumping away on the radio um, within the world and then the score sort of grows out of it. Mm, um, yep. As he sort of realizes that things aren't quite right, he's in a different time and so on. Yeah. So it's a similar idea. Yeah, and even in the fish under the sea dance, mm. you have that sort of you know before the Earth Angel things come yeah. up. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. When when that redhead guy's dancing with George, George. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pictures yeah. disappearing. The orchestra's going to get getting all crazy. Electoric yep. stuff at the top. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are certainly examples of like um, diegetic and non-diegetic music kind of working together. Like even uh, I don't know if either of you've seen the new um, a Star Is Born film with Lady Gaga, but there's a great moment in that where one of the uh, sort of um, pop songs in pretty much the first scene um, there's a hard cut in the middle of a concert where they're playing a song and the bass continues in the non-diegetic soundtrack mm. um, which is such a fantastic effect and you know there are other uh, sort of similar similar examples um, I mean even thinking of all within the diegesis like uh, Rear Window where you have sort of jazz playing against 
um, romantic piano music. Mm. But that's all within the world of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so playing the diegetic music against non-diegetic is much less usual, I think. It's an interesting effect. I mean, it's the idea of the, you know, you've got the world um, and its vibe and then the, you know, the score comes in to be the the mental state, mm. you know, the emotion. Um, that the thing you don't see. The thing you don't yeah. see, yeah, that comes in over the top. I mean, mm. even uh, Dario Marinelli's Pride and Prejudice from 2005. God, that was a good year. I mean, it's one year after... <laughs> Prisoner of Azkaban, but uh, there's a lovely little thing there where they play. Um, what's that piece? Henry, is it Henry Purcell? Um, dun, 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 Everybody, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, they play that in you know the traditional way because it's a it's a community dance really, and then the score picks it up as. As yes. as, yep. as things go darker and you know plays it, in, I think possibly even a minor key, and you know, and it really seamlessly blends, and it's really nice. I mean, when when you think about this this lesson that's happening in mm. the in the world in the movie, um, you know, Lupin sort of looks like he's a fairly reckless teacher, where he mm. sort of you know puts this onto the kids. But uh, do you believe that if you just sort of take out the score, you know, have all that sinister music, and you've just got that sort of almost Benny Goodman esque jazz mm. playing? Only over the radio, and then they're having all these things come out, and it's mm. just jazz the entire time. Is it so sinister that the classroom there? Or well, I think that's his. That's his the point, intent. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, is to try and take some of the horror off this for these poor kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so really, it's John Williams who've who've brought the horror back. Yeah, yeah. How dare you, yeah. Dubsy, bringing the bringing the mood down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I've I've a few me and a few friends we nickname him Dubsy. Dubsy. J W. Ah. Wow. Wow. There you go. We had a bit of choir stuff we played earlier, but I want to play, uh, again, going back to Lupin, where Harry kind of meets Lupin in these little, um, what's it called? Study classroom? Or yeah, classroom. Private yeah. study, maybe yeah. we'll say. Children. And gets Harry to think of a positive memory, you know, in order to form this Patronus chant, you know, ask him to explore the past. And you get a very rare a cappella choir cue where it's just the choir. And to me, it has a lot of shades of, you know, because this is talking about memories. There's a cue in artificial intelligence, AI, mm. AI, called stored memories. Again, talking about memories where exactly the same thing happens. He uses this a cappella choir. It's not, not atonal, but it's, it's a little um, uh, ethereal and very barren kind of sound. AI? 
you know, and to me, like, I think there's something about the human voice, about choir, yeah. which, I mean, you don't get, there's not that many Williams scores where the choir is featured in a non, like, you know, think of Jewel of the Fates. Yeah. It's a real kind of, you know, chanting, even yeah, in this yeah. film, Double Trouble, it, it, it's a sung thing, Home Alone, they're all sung things. Yeah. Um, you know, occasionally he'll add a bit of chorus, maybe just for a bit of emotion, but to have him really kind of stand alone like that, they're, they're very few and far between. Mm. So they're, they're precious gems when we get them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, is the effect that comes across here that one of sort of loneliness? Yeah. Like, I mean, it's not the sort of loneliness of I don't have anyone around me. It's more like it's only me. Like, yeah, like from a soul or yeah, from a soul. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's absolutely the coldest way to use the human voice. I think. Yeah. For for something that is otherwise extremely easy to connect with, mm. it's you know it feels yeah very lonely as you put it. Yeah, I mean, because he, I guess he's been asked to sort of search deep mm. to you know within his memory and his feelings and. Mm. Um, to come up with an idea that maybe he's never spoken to anyone about. Um, he doesn't really know how to articulate. Mm. I think maybe that style of voice is, yeah, it becomes very singular. I mean, I, I know there are multiple parts, but you could almost do this well, with just Well, a, it's only two parts. I think oh, that's okay, also why yeah. you're not getting full complete triads and yeah. chords. You're just getting this sort of yeah, two-part writing. Yeah. So it's sort of, it almost feels like... Um, you know, back in the Renaissance days and stuff, you'd get these sort of, you know, medieval songs where often it'd just be like two-part mm. sort of thing. Which you often have in the uh, the recorders. The recorders so often yeah, are, they're are just two parts. Anyway. To take us in a complete other direction now, um, I mean, we get, we get this, I mean... Eclectic doesn't do this score justice as a word. So <laughs> we get some, I think, what to me sounds like kind of old-fashioned horror music, basically. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I mean, like, it's just... Uh, I mean, so this is for the, the Bogart. And the I'm sorry, the monster book. Sorry, not the monster book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when it when it kind of escapes and Harry has to recapture it uh, in in his, under his bed or something. under his yep. bed. Yeah, yeah. And it's like it's incredible. I mean, the percussion there is with the what what is that? A ratchet. A, yeah, uh, yeah, it's called a ratchet. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I remember having one in primary school and just annoying my friends. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrible sound. Yeah. yeah. But, so if you can imagine, here. you can imagine. Uh, I guess it's a crank. Yeah. Um, with a handle on it that you sort of rotate around and it gives that sort of um, grindy... Yeah, it's like grinding wood. Wood, little, yeah. Little sheets of wood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, for, I mean, just for c- quick comparison, I mean, I don't, I don't think this is particularly, you know, similar, but uh, just, you know, because it was sort of top of, top of mind, um, the, the music, um, uh, Hans Salter, who was a great uh, horror, classic horror movie um, composer his music for the creature from the black lagoon just as a point of comparison Yeah, those dissonant snarls—they're—they're they're, they're so overdone. It's almost like going, you know, yeah, 
yeah. like jumping out of the cupboard and scaring your sister yeah, kind, yeah. Of, kind of thing when you're eight years old. Um, yeah, you know. <laughs> absolutely. It doesn't quite have the same percussive. I mean, it doesn't have the ratchet. But, you know, other than that, I mean, it's pretty similar. It's, yeah. Yeah. But, but when you compare it to the Dementors music, like yeah. that's seriously scary. Yeah. Whereas this, this is a book, you yeah. know, with like teeth kind of going la, 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 under the yeah. bed and chattering yeah. away. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little scary. And, and the yeah. music sort of is a light... It's kind of a bit more lighthearted, scary. Mm. Once mm. again, it is vicious, though. I mean, like it mauls um, Neville. Yeah, <laughs> like true. it tears all of his clothes off. Don't. Yeah. I mean, don't. <laughs> this is this is what I think is the beauty of of, of Harry Potter. Yeah. The reason why I think kids really loved it mm. is because, like Hogwarts. I mean, yes, obviously there's danger there, but it's dangerous everywhere, yeah. and just mildly dangerous or really dangerous. But there's sort of. And and the teacher doesn't care. Yeah. So like this, literally, this kid has had his entire uniform just shredded. Yeah. Everything's been torn off him, and he gets scolded. Yeah. Like if that was to happen, yeah. <laughs> if that yeah. was to happen in not, real life, not yeah. just, you, you should have known it was going to bite your clothes yeah, off. Exactly. Not just got, not just scolded, and not just mauled, but mauled by the set text. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. this is the required reading, <laughs> yeah. And and you're a moron to yeah. allow it to maul you. Yeah. Like that's Dan, right. I'm sure all of us who've been to university feel like we've been mauled by well. text at some some point. I know my students do sometimes. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. You've uh, opened a Penderecki score. No, oh, actually, I do <laughs> play them. Tear your face off at some point. I do actually. Yeah. I, I play them a bit of Legetti too. Anyway, yeah. wow. Okay, so it's uh, not even music students. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Shall we move on, yes. guys? Yeah, look, I think what is arguably one of the most interesting cues and one of the longest, probably the longest yeah. um, in this film is the whole time travel bit. Yeah. The back mm. to the future moment. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is really unique to the Harry Potter universe. I didn't, didn't even know time travel was possible before I saw this film. Mm. And we get, you know... A device that is, I think, been used before. I can't think of what specifically, where the ticking clock, you know, is yeah. indicating the passing of time, and it runs like a like a click track for like four or five minutes solidly. It was used most recently in Dunkirk, and they made sort of it was a oh, big okay. feature of the discussion of the score because the 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 clock that's used in the Dunkirk score is like a sample of Christopher Nolan's grandfather's pocket watch or something like oh, that. Oh, how poetic! Yeah, um, <laughs> but you know. Harry Potter, uh, John Williams did it did it first. Well, yeah. at least I'm sure, probably not first actually. But. <laughs> um, so look, let, let's have a listen to um, a, a bit of this track. I actually really love that effect. I think it's it's really interesting. Yeah, and it's sort of it's hypnotic. 
in the mm. repetition, you know, bup, 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 you mm. know, it's it's sort of going forwards and backwards. It's going mm. down and up, down, mm. down, up, up, down, down, up, up. Um, even those horn lines, bum, 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 whatever it is, you yeah. know, they're like we're talking Back to the Future. It kind mm. of goes down, then up, and mm. and it just had a has this sort of relentless. We're really running out of time. Mm. Um, I think the fact that yeah, the harmony is quite static in amongst yeah. all the craziness mm. makes it feel like that. Don't you think that's the the funniest part about so many time travel films? Can we call this a time travel film? Yeah, I think so. Why not? <laughs> well, time travel it, sequence. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Um, that always in time travel films, they're running out of time. Mm. <laughs> like, don't you think that's a ridiculous idea? <laughs> that the that I mean, for instance, why can't Hermione like if they stuff it up because it does feel like they've got one shot at this. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, and why can't she just go, oh, well, mess that up, turns the time turner again yeah. and goes back? Like, why can't... Yeah, take look. it up with JK. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that I wonder about the forward to time pass section, is it actually reversed strings in there or is it just strings playing a very convincing... So here's what I'm going to say about this. In the live version performance that we do, it's just played normally. Yeah. But hearing that section there, there's definitely stuff in the original soundtrack, which is like being overdubbed yeah. in reverse and extra craziness because it's not it's not there when we do it live. Yeah. Mm. So I think there's that. a bit of multi-tracking going, God, Williams, multi-tracking. Yeah. What's, <laughs> yeah. What, what, what's, what's, what's the devil in this? A synthesizer or? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but it's the, D it's minor. That, God forbid. That figure to me sounds like it's actually reversed. Reversed, yeah. I think you probably hit the nail on the head there, Dan. I mean, even the repetition... Does make it feel like it's spinning like a clock, yeah. Turning, um, you know, the hands in this in this case, the hands are turning backwards. Mm. Um, but you know, the time turner is also spinning, and when she gives it three turns, uh, you know, the whole thing suddenly spins off like mm. a gyroscope. Mm. So you got everything spinning. You got clocks turning. You got things time turners spinning. Mm. Everything's spinning, and yeah, it's cool. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose in in contrast to the other ma uh, action music we've been talking about, and you know, all sorts of other things throughout this, is that it's interesting that this is the sequence where Williams has decided that a really steady pulse actually enhances the feeling of of the the music and the effect that he's going for. When you know, we could have had the extending arms, you know, music of yeah. before the the many limbs. Yeah, well, um, there are many is, hands on the yeah. clock, Dan. And do you think that's is that pretty rare for Williams? Yeah, like I was watching you know, uh, like the latest Mission Impossible film on the plane recently, mm. and yeah, just really noticing how. And which is a trend in, in many action films or films today. Just, you know, setting an ostinato and just letting it run for mm. like really long stretches, not hitting anything, just really having having that relentless kind of bed mm. of stuff. Um, and William very, very rarely does that. Which is interesting actually, because I would say that one of the composers who has done the ostinato most successfully was Bernard Herman, who was mm. or Bernard Herman, sorry, I should say, uh, which was you know John Williams is you know great friend and, and one of his composing idols um, but you know a lot of his music for North by Northwest and Psycho even and Vertigo um, not to mention many other scores is really based around repetition yeah. of that steady pulse do you think well, it's the a result of the you know composing on the computer that you can get I, something I to sequence and to repeat really easily without yeah. having to write it 400 times onto a manuscript yeah just press like command 
yeah. copy and paste. Copy and paste. Yeah, 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 I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, but, like loops and yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that therefore it's 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 no, no, lesser no, 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 no. or you know it's not good composing. I'm just yeah. saying that because it's so easy. Because yep. it's um, we 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 live in a world of mm. you know current day electronic music, yeah. you know, dance music is is looping and. That whole thing, you know, you, yeah. th- this stuff seeps into other genres. So. Well, also, like the the entire digital audio workstations, the DAWs, mm. like you know, Logic or whatever it is that you're using, is built around the enabling of easy repetition. Yeah, mm. uh, like I mean, I in my own limited experience of composing, I like I find myself using repetition so much because it's so easy, and mm. because that's because I'm using <clears throat> the computer systems like that that are based around that i'm not composing written down on paper Mm. i'm not talented enough to do that i can only sort of play it into the computer and fiddle around with it and so i am basing it around these kind of i think if you actually had to write it onto a score nick you wouldn't do as much of that stuff i would have thought no Mm. no but look in this sequence Mm. the um you know the I'm not saying Williams is just like copying, pasting the whole chunks because there's there is still his trademark no, color yeah. and stuff. But the tempo, the the harmony is quite and, and static. And Williams doesn't write using computer systems. No. he writes on paper. Yeah. So if he's elected to uh, have a repetitious section, it's, it's by choice. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and interestingly, the you know this whole sequence with the ticking clock, the ticking clock disappears when the kids actually kind of for one of a better word, like start interfering where they actually make the decision they're going to get up and go and, and change something. Mm. And Williams changes from all this boom, 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 kind of stuff into this even much simpler static. He just has this kind of weird chord. It's a great chord. Yeah, That's... which is like on marimba, vibraphone, piano, harp, all the kind of like the keyboard, inverted commas, keyboard style instruments, all five of them, yeah. are all just sort of jamming really softly on these these kind of really groovy, slightly wrong chords. Check it out. You know, so on and so forth. And, and it continues. Um, and Dan, we were talking before how it really does sound like some of his stuff from Catch Me If You Can, uh, which was written, was this, was Catch Me If You Can before this? Uh, or was Catch Me If You Can written? I think so. I think Catch Me If You Can it's was... It's definitely the 2000s. Yeah, it very, very, like it would be within a year of yeah. uh, each other, I think. Definitely. So yeah, have, have a listen here. It's really more of this sort of, it's almost hypnotizing. I mean, maybe that's that's the vibe he's going for. You know, yeah. when he's hypnotized someone with the clock swinging back and ah, forth. Ah, there we go. <laughs> you ever do that at primary school, Yeah, Andrew? Not successfully. No? Hit no. on the girl next to you by hypnotizing? No, I tried to hit on them by playing them saxophone. Oh, no wonder It did not work. Yeah, you, uh, playing them Conan the Barbarian <laughs> <laughs> over and over as we discovered last week. Yeah, yeah. Here you go.
It's 2002 was Catch Me If You Can. Okay, so a couple of years prior. Mm. I mean, it's, it's kind of caper music, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's sneaking. It's oh, yeah. got a bit of mm. stealth to it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, got a bit of jazz to it. I mean, I also wondered while we were playing that as well, something that I hadn't really considered before is that, I mean, there's almost a little bit of Steve Reich in there with that yes. sort of minimalist yeah, repetition. That slowly evolves and changes yeah. over time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of, of uh, I mean, his most famous, you know, music for 18 musicians. different mood really but, oh, but I mean slow it down exactly <laughs> blum, yeah blum, <laughs> and, and you'd get it and, and that's the influence of, of minimalism really uh, and I mean you know we've already m- suggested that maybe John Adams was was an influence there so mm. maybe 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 Azkaban is John Williams's uh, minimalist influenced <laughs> score but isn't it amazing I mean look let's 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 try and add up the styles that yeah. we've, we've looked at so we got Renaissance yep slash medieval yeah yep. We got Baroque yep. with the recorders and stuff. Mm-hmm. We got crazy jazz. Yep. We got like a classical style waltz. Yep. yep. Uh, we've also got, don't forget the other kind of jazz. We've also got swing. Yes, yeah. we've got the swing. Yeah, yep. separate pieces. Yep. 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 Okay. Mm-hmm. That's six. We've got minimalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got tr- like traditional John Williams action music. Yep. Got lots of that. A kind of um, romantic, lush. Melody from you know Window to the Past, one of his you know wonderful melodic pieces. Yep, we've got flying music. We've got flying music, mm. and I'm out of fingers. Yeah, that's ten already. <laughs> that's ten, wow. and, and it's not like they're necessarily, you know, it's not like we've got uh, uh, the the cowboy movie and the superhero movie here as kind of like you know influences, and they're actually more more or less the same influence in different clothes. Um, <laughs> these are dramatically different musical styles in most cases. Yeah, There are very few there that you naturally move between or naturally include. Mm. Um, and yet they all cohere into this score that has its own identity and all of that music makes sense together. Yeah. I mean, to me, that's why... I mean, as I said at the start of the, the the previous episode, I think it's Williams's best score this century, and I think it's probably the best score this century. It's just it's so varied, but in a coherent way. Yep. And there's no better example of that than the end credits, which just oh. whiz through all of them. Yeah, you know, it's just fantastic. Really it gives you a good overview. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I think it's one of the only end credits suites that's actually on the album for a Harry Potter film, and it, mm. that's fantastic. Mm. I mean, I like it's also that's the other thing is that it's to me it's almost like a John Williams greatest hits album. Mm. You got Catch Me If You Can, bit of Minority Report, yeah. bit of War of the Worlds, and then also a bit of Close Encounters, bit of ET with the flying theme, yeah. bit of maybe even Jurassic Park with the the Whomping Willow, boom, boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. Sounds a little bit like you know some of the big bold brass statements, and like it's just and and yet Dan, in amongst that, yeah, there's you could argue that yes, it does have all those things, but I think for many people out there, it doesn't have 
you know, it, you don't hear this score at, at concerts mm. of Williams playing this stuff at concerts. No, no. There's is a real lack of a. It's almost like its downfall is the fact that it, it touches so many bases. Yeah, you know. Um, sing me the it, theme from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Most people will just no, sing Hedwig's yeah, theme, yeah. you know. Yeah, um, it's true. I mean, is its downfall that... I mean, its downfall is almost what enables it to be so incredible uh, is that it is the third instalment in a franchise yeah. and so it doesn't have to do that setting up work. It no. can afford to be different and because it doesn't have to do that setting up work, it also doesn't have... I mean, for, for people who are fans of the series, they'll know a window to the past and they'll know um, Double Trouble, but, but it's Hedwig's theme and, 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 yep. and all bust mm. in terms of the influence on the, on the great themes. I mean, it's, a, it's a, probably a well-informed, gutsy um, programmer of music, of concert music, mm. who says, I'm doing the concert that has Harry Potter music in it at some point. Mm. And doesn't play the stuff from <laughs> Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, you know, goes yeah. straight to this. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a huge call because yeah. <laughs> yeah. it doesn't have the main theme in it. Doesn't have all the things yeah. you know. You know, I mean, if you could if you could have some kind of arrangement like concert suite that starts off with Hedwig's theme mm-hmm. and then rapidly goes into the end <laughs> credits of this with yeah. every single you know. Incredible combination of, of weirdness. And of course, speaking yeah. of the end credits, right before the end credits happen, we get a theme from the original. Don't we get the Nimbus 2000 yeah, the theme? Yeah, it's once again, I, I think it's William's little joke. Like yeah. It's a little, <laughs> I mean, it's a joke anyway, because yeah. I guess it's a silly thing that happens at mm. the end there. Uh, but I sort of see it as William's just giving a big old wink. Yeah. That, you know, hey, remember that score? Remember <laughs> yeah. that moment? You yeah. remember when Harry was so young and yeah. and things were a little simpler and, you know, mm. we just launched straight into Nimbus 2000. And the way it's cut, the way it's edited, it sort of just puts the brakes mm. on. You want to hear the rest of that cue and it sort of just stops and then you burst into the, you know, the, the end credits and it's all, you know, um, mm. recorders and... Um, weirdness and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's good. So, yeah. I think we should probably just just finish by playing a bit of it because after after that you do get uh, like almost the only kind of like major key performance of Double Trouble. Yeah, right. Sort of, it's almost orchestrated and it really kind of it it it's completely removed from the character that we've heard it in throughout the entire film. <laughs> Fantastic stuff. I mean, it's it, yeah. What a, what an interesting thing to just throw in a, a major version right at the end. Like, yeah. why not? Yeah. Why not? Mis- mischief so, managed. Yeah. All that trouble it was just yeah. in your head. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's yeah. fine. Yeah, it's done everything. Till next in the time. School. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's great. Um, 
that brings us to the end of our analysis of Harry Potter, uh, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban with part two. We hope you enjoyed yourself. And of course, if you did enjoy yourself, please go ahead and press subscribe and write us a review on iTunes. We read absolutely every one of them and um, it's been really lovely the things that people have been saying. And of course, please uh, share away to your friends and your family. And as we always say, if you hate this uh, podcast, then send it to your enemies and um, really give them what for. So uh, um, also Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Art of the Score, all three of those we check regularly. Our email address, contact at artofthescore.com.au. And uh, yeah, you can send us a note there and we'd be happy to get back to you. But until next time, I'm Andrew Pogson. That's Dan Golding. Mischief most definitely managed. And he's Nicholas Buck. Thanks for having me. And this was Art of the Score.